Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. My name's Ali Maxwell and across from me today, George Ellick. George, plenty for us to get through across the three EFL decisions. Decisions. Divisions. Decisions, decisions. Oh, the first Monday back since replacing Dave Jones, or rather having been replaced by Dave Jones. And I've absolutely fluffed the opening link. Brilliant. That's, you know what, it's been a tough week hearing and reading all the... All the good feedback, all the questions, when's Dave coming back? Can we have a, a Dave and George only podcast? And that's a terrible start. So I'm going to try and gloss over it. Uh, and let's start by talking about three unbeaten teams at the top or towards the top of the championship. Not quite first, second and third. But we will start with the team top of the pile at Swansea City because they had, George, probably the result of the weekend across the EFL, beating Leeds 1-0 away from home with a last minute winner from Wayne Routledge. Fantastic scenes uh, with the celebrations. How, what did you make of the game in general? It's funny because I was, when I was watching the highlights back, having obviously read that Leeds predictably had more of the ball, had more of the chances, um, and were done with the sucker punch later on. I was thinking that watching it back, despite the result, I almost feel like the, the performance itself um, almost strengthened Leeds' position as, as, as the favourites. You can't watch what they did in that game and come out of it because they dropped three points and think that they're now less likely to go up, in my opinion, because there's so much of it to go. Um, they still played very well. They still created plenty of chances. They couldn't put them away. Um, but against a very, very good Swansea team, they still managed to be to be fairly dominant. So this is quickly to interrupt, a, 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 I guess, a response to those. And I've seen a few saying, same old problems for Leeds, same problems as last season. What you're saying is, if you're going to have problems dominating games and just not being able to score the yeah, winning goal is not yeah. a bad one I mean, to have. And the one game so far this season where they were maybe less dominant was the, in terms of just the balance of play, was probably the Brentford game. And I think that result's going to look better in time um, as it goes on. But for Swansea, I mean, the important thing here, the headline is Swansea winning. Um, I, I said on Friday night on Sky Sports that Swansea maybe had had quite an easy fixture list. So to, to go to Ellen Road is undoubtedly going to be the hardest game they have this season. That played out in terms of how the how there is you know the game itself was played. Steve Cooper was keen to point out in his post match interview that they still had times where they you know created chances and and, and I mean he even said himself strung a few passes together. Um, I think that's a bit optimistic and he should focus on the unbelievable effort they did to, in order to stop Leeds from scoring. We saw lots of last last ditch defending from their players as well. And uh, and to grab that that winner is a massive massive result to them. And, and you say it's you know, the result of the weekend. I, I'm not sure if it was the performance of the weekend, but I think it's probably the result of the season so far because that really sends out a message to to those of us who'd noted that they'd played against teams who are probably destined for for a bottom half finish this season, um, and maybe had question marks as to whether or not the quality would would, would go through against tougher teams, but. Even if they, you know, they conceded way more shots and way more of the ball to Leeds to come away from that game with three points, I don't think Leeds will lose many more games at home this season, if any. So, uh, a massive, massive result and a, and a big performance. Yeah, they're three out of three in terms of wins at home this season as well. Swansea, they were strong at home last season, but struggled a little bit away from home, which probably undermined their playoff push towards the end of the season. Uh, but all looking very, very good. You're right to say on Sky on Friday night that they had had relatively easy fixtures and that is relative to the rest of the league no one's saying that uh, that games are easy at this level but the website soccer stats has a, a very handy tool in which measures uh, how easy teams games have been and how easy teams games that are to come will be and that's based on their opponent's record and it splits it up into home and away form as well so you know, we all know that, let's say, playing Wigan at home is a very different prospect to playing Wigan away from home. Uh, and it takes that into account. And at the time you said that, they had literally had the second easiest fixtures so far based on what's happened this season. But really impressive. After the international break, they will host Nottingham Forest. Uh, and that'll be another game where they could lay down a marker uh, and, and put down a challenge, I suppose, to the rest of the division. Because we certainly expect Leeds will be up there. I think there's an expectation that Fulham, over the course of the season, will get stronger and will surely challenge to some extent the automatic promotion places and out of the rest of the teams maybe at Swansea who look most likely I would also say that watching the winning goal back a few times what was so clear is that Leeds understandably having dominated the game truthfully uh, they were so keen to get on the counter-attack weren't they when the initial ball was cleared mm. that they defended the the first cross the corner with nine players in their box 
And when the ball came back in for the second phase, it was notable that they only had six players in the box. So three of them were darting upfield to get on the counter and that's where they ended up losing a bit of um, losing a bit of dominance and, and Routledge with the finish. So a fantastic result for Swansea. They go top of the league as we head into the international break. Um, and uh, and Georgie, you're saying not too worried uh, from a Leeds perspective. What about uh, the team in second, Charlton Athletics? Certainly something that I think we're still surprised to be saying, but the more we watch this team, the more we understand how they're going about things and why really they're picking up points. We're learning that although this is not a team that's dominating all the metrics, one thing you cannot argue with is that they are finding ways to win close games and demonstrating a hell of a lot of efficiency, uh, especially going forward in terms of taking the chances that they create, if not creating tons and tons of chances. Yeah, I mean, they've had the fewer shots in the league. Um, so there's no, they're certainly um, not creating chance after chance. I think that the key thing with Charlton is is an understanding that you know, they're not going to be getting a penalty every other game. Well, I think they're going at a better rate currently. Um, that's not going to continue. Um, the, the chances are they're not going to maintain this incredible record of edging out close games. But you know, they were basically cut adrift from the rest of the league and put people's thoughts at the beginning of the season. And, and in my opinion, rightly so, given the, the troubles off the field, the inexperience of the management team and the players they lost in the summer. So... Everything they're doing now is is quite extraordinary, and I hope that for, for Lee Bowyer's sake, um, expectations don't get risen too high because they're on fourteen games through six. Uh, sorry, fourteen points through six games. Are those fourteen points on the way to safety, or are this, is this now going to change and be seen as fourteen points um, in a promotion push? Because, as I say, you, you, it's, it's very unlikely that unless um, Charlton find a way to create more chances they're not going to continue to, to score at the rate they are currently and that's going to see a drop off but in terms of what they're doing itself it's very hard to, to, to find a club in the 72 teams that we cover at the moment doing a better job and, and exceeding expectations more so all credit to them um, yet again you know they in the game on the weekend against Reading Reading had all the chances at 0-0 Puskas missed a couple of, of really good good chances and it was a speculative effort from, from Lecco and a, and a penalty that that won them the game. So a huge three points for them. Um, I was going to say, Reading fans might be thinking, hold on, we had a season under Yap Stam where we scored speculative efforts and penalties and rebounds from penalties. Got us all the way to Wembley for the playoff final. Um, But no, completely recognise what you're saying. And Finbar, the biscuit man, who sent in a very good Sunday scouting report, summed it up by saying, Reading were the most threatening team in the first half, but fell apart in the second half. Uh, partly down to the energy and self-belief and organisation of a hard-working Charlton side. So there are some key words to understand what's going well for Charlton at this early stage. I want to shout out a fantastic Dylan Phillips save from a John Swift free kick, which you can see on the highlights show on Quest, which you can watch back online. Uh, We probably don't give keepers enough credit on the podcast. So every now and again, when you see a save that is genuinely 10 out of 10, I think it's worth shouting out. Uh, Reading... Probably do feel a little bit hard done by, as you say, based on the chances created in the first half, but disappointing to fall apart slightly in the second half. What I would say in in positive terms is the call-up of Omar Richards to the England under-21 team, which I think came as a shock, certainly to me, and I think to a few Reading fans. He has started to make the left wing-back slot his own, uh, and I think he's probably helped by a few injuries and a bit of weakness down the England under-21's left-hand side, but he's got an opportunity, reflects very well on Reading uh, and their youth development, which, uh, you know, they are one of the best purveyors of that, certainly in the Championship. Um, and uh, good luck to him as he as he joins up with the England team. For Charlton, I've got to mention Conor Gallagher again. The question was put out on Twitter by Ram Srinivas as to whether he might be the best uh, or, or, or the Chelsea youth player, the Chelsea loanee that has taken to EFL football the quickest out of all of the ones that we've seen and and actually looking at the list of names it's probably not a terrible shout in terms of never having played senior football before this only under 23 stuff uh, and he looks to have the technique and the temperament to uh, to, to cope easily with championship football Johnny Williams in good form as well uh, George the third team unbeaten in the championship are West Bromwich Albion uh, they beat Blackburn 3-2 and it was a it was a strange game to watch back because uh, just both sides defending I think left a lot to be desired. West Brom 
giving Blackburn a goal, you know, a good bit of pressing from Travis, but ultimately a poor pass from Bartley uh, and, a, and a bit a bit lax from Sawyers. Saw Dak sweep home uh, an early goal. But then, you know, it, it looked like West Brom were very, very good for their win here. I suppose the, the question after six games is how, how, how do we judge Billich's first six games in charge of West Brom and, and how do we judge this team now as a potential automatic promotion candidate? Yeah, I mean, they're unbeaten so far this season. They're also yet to keep a clean sheet. So it's it's chaos under Bilic, which is maybe no bad thing. Um, they look to me possibly... It's difficult, but because of the Gale and, R- and Rodriguez situation last season where they had two guys who were quite clearly better than the league, but that was where their attacking threat really ended. It does feel like they're more of an attacking unit this time around. Um, Dian Garner, again, brilliant on, on the left-hand side, unknown from West Ham, scored a really, really nice goal. Matt Phillips... Seems to have started the season in much better form than he than last season, or at least more consistent. Uh, you have to say, uh, Matthias Pereira starred uh, in this. I think it was his first start for West Brom and played really well in that number ten role. Some brilliant through balls. Yeah, and, and then we haven't even spoken about Austin and Sawyers, who are the two signings. Who I think people got people really excited. Austin yet to, to burst into goal scoring um, life, but certainly will do. And Sawyers, alongside Livermore, is just feels a more mobile um, two in front of the back four. So there's. I think in terms of an attacking prospect, there's there's a lot to be excited about. Uh, Semi Ajay seems to have started his his West Brom career um, in quite. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Um, he very nearly scored a known goal on the weekend, <laughs> quite hectic fashion, yeah. let's say. Pulse raising yeah. stuff at the back and, at and times. He's obviously very talented, and he's going to have a a great career. He's just a young, fairly inexperienced centre back. Um, and as I say, yet to, to keep a clean sheet has got to be something of a concern. Um, this was the first game they've conceded two goals in. So I think as a team, I'm largely positive about West Brom. I think a little bit confused as to how Slavon Bilic has, hasn't kind of got them better as a defensive unit, but I'm sure that'll come. So they look, they're a team I wanted to have a look at for the first few games of the season. And I don't think they're going to be a team that are going to run away at the top of the table with Leeds, but they look like a very, very solid bet to, to get a playoff place. Yeah, I think the one thing I'm certainly still looking for with this West Brom team <coughs> in in what is a very early stage of the season uh, is is being more comfortable in beating teams at home. Uh, this was their first home win of the season. Previously drew with Millwall and with Reading at the Hawthorns. So uh, although it was, I mean, on balance of play, a, a, a deserved win, uh, I'm not sure with these defensive uh, potential calamities that it was necessarily comfortable fully comfortable uh, and if they are to, to to challenge for the title let's say uh, you would expect that their home form would need to become pretty automatic especially against teams who would expect to be you know outside of the playoffs and and uh, and below so from a blackburn point of view look I, we don't try and spend too much time slagging things off on here because there's always good things to talk about after a weekend but i mean some of the goals that West Brom scored, it was it was very difficult to understand who to blame, whether it's the way that they're being set up or whether it's the application of some of the players in Blackburn's back line. When you consider that after two minutes, their midfield and attack had essentially, through their own uh, high pressing and intensity, concentration, uh, had created a goal to put them one up in a game that they were you know, not the favourites to win by any means. For that defence to be pierced, uh, three or four times with balls in behind, fairly simple balls in behind. And to watch some of those defenders essentially jogging back as West Brom players overtook them on their way to the box, to me, just pretty unacceptable. And I'm not really sure how or why that's come about, but that's certainly something that I noticed and something I do not want to see from any team, but certainly a Blackburn side who, you know, if they're going to become very, very lax and very poor defensively, then, you know, they're going to be looking at a bottom half finish for sure. And a lot of that optimism that we had is, is going to dissipate so hopefully just an off day but something I noticed uh, let's talk about Brentford 3 Derby nil. Let's. this was a final of a performance I suppose almost on both sides of the coin here so we'll go through both starting with B's at 3-0 up at half time Ben Rama with his first start of the season and his little turn his little spin move to create that opening goal it won't go down as an assist because, of course, Watkins' shot was blocked and, and Buemo put it in. But absolutely sensational skill, just lighting up the second tier. And that's what we want to see more of him from this. Uh, do you think, George, from Bees fans and Bees admirers, shall I say, there was a bit of relief here because it had been the first five games where there'd been XG domination, shot domination, but also 
poor defensive mistakes individually and essentially not finishing their chances. So this feels like the Brentford that we always talk about as what they could be. Uh, and uh, and Thomas Frank afterwards sort of trying to stay quite calm, but clearly quite excited. Well, I mean, Thomas Frank also said it was the best half of football he'd seen at Griffin Park in three years. So that's not only his tenure, but also the, the one of Dean Smith where he was an assistant. Um, so getting excited, yes, but also I think keen to point out just how good they'd been. And they'd only picked up one point in their last three games before that, um, scoring just, just a solitary goal, um, including an away, away game at Charlton and a home game against Hull. Um, they were better value than the 1-0 defeat against Charlton. But even so, there was pressure coming into this game, undoubtedly. Um, so it was really impressive to see them doing what they're doing. Um, Ollie Watkins learning that role, um, the Morpay role, learning that number nine role and uh, getting on the end of some, some good crosses, scoring a couple of goals. And Buemo looks like a really, really exciting talent as well. Um, people talk about Caviero, not Kart, Mitrovic, but... In terms of talent, um, they may not be the, the headline names, but Ben Rama, um, Mbuemo and, and Watkins could be an unbelievably difficult forward line to face, given that both the wide players seem very adept to coming inside onto onto their stronger foot and, and causing problems with their range of shooting and passing and also the crossing ability as well. Uh, it's As ever with Brentford, it's going to be interesting to see if they can follow it up with another good performance away at Preston, but more of the same of that and they're going to be right right up there um, but it's just as I say whether it's an attitude problem well, I'm not sure but they need to do it consistently if it is an attitude problem I actually have a fair amount of confidence in Thomas Frank although he might be working with a, a team of young players there's something about his own persona his own personality uh, and his resilience I suppose that he showed last season as well and the way he talks about his team's performances his honesty I suppose at times uh, and the things that he wants to focus on, which perhaps in comparison to Dean Smith is a bit more solidity defensively. And if he can get, you know, two thirds of what Smith got going forward, but double the, the defensive output, then, I, you know, I do still have confidence that he could end up being, let's say, looking a bit Farker-esque in a year or two. I'm not saying it's necessarily this season, but I can see him making this Brentford team a very good team at some point. Um, from a, a Derby perspective, um, uh, let's frame this chat around uh, a piece on the Athletic website uh, this morning from Ryan Conway, who covers Derby uh, and has done brilliant work already in, in the short space of time that the Athletic has been live. Um, for those listeners who are not aware, although I'm sure you are, the Athletic are a sponsor of ours. And, uh, and we have a partnership with them through which you can sign up to the Athletic and get 50% off uh, by following the offer code or by typing in theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 george ryan's piece on the athletic is titled koku's inbox alter attitude start a supply line to goal stop rams being herded into midfield it's only six games but there's a lot for koku to sort out what do you make of of, of the of what ryan's saying what do you make of derby at, at this stage after such a bad week there's an interesting um quote from koku in the piece where Koku says, I cannot accept our mentality and attitude compared to Brentford's. I think there'll be a few dry smiles around the EFL for people who know Brentford better because they're not one that, you know, you can envy many things about Brentford, but their mentality normally isn't one of them. But maybe that just says a lot here about about them and about their performance here at Derby. Um, 3-0 down at half-time, having been absolutely battered. They only mustered three shots in the second half, all of, none of which were on target, two of which were speculative long-range efforts. It's just not good enough. And, and as Ryan says, they need to focus on on getting the ball wide and not getting congested in midfield. Um, but when your wide players are Jack Marriott and, and Tom Lawrence, Marriott is a striker. He's a player playing out of position at the moment. Lawrence is a is a wide player who likes to come inside and get the ball in central areas. So it, it's, I guess, an issue with personnel, um, maybe an imbalanced squad. The, the need to shoehorn Marriott into a side due to his popularity with the fans probably doesn't help as well because in my opinion it should be either Marriott or Waghorn playing up top. Um, but again, this is a game where a 3-0 defeat to Brentford away from home for a club the size of Derby and given their, their finishing positions last season as well may look pretty disastrous. But they're not going to be the only team and not, not the only good team who are going to barely get a kick at Griffin Park. Did we not discuss pre-season that expectations on Philip Koku in terms of finishing position for Derby this season that it would be wrong for anyone to expect them to be finishing in the playoffs not to say that they couldn't aim for that 
but for that to be essentially the wrong attitude to have um, is there an extent to which people are overreacting slightly or or is it just such a concern this performance and maybe the one less so in the Carabao Cup against I mean I guess what I'm saying is I feel less desperate about this at this stage although as you've touched on there are plenty of teething issues I think you know unemotionally looking into it the Forest Derby game in the, in the Carabao Cup is irrelevant in my eyes I mean it's obviously not irrelevant to the fans because it's it's a rivalry and it's again they're going to want to win um, but in terms of, of Koku and his impact on the team and, and, and you know the tactics and strategy side of it I'm not particularly fussed about that at all as I say I think the Brentford game is one which given it's a bit of time won't look quite as shocking um, as it did and the game before that was a West Brom it was a West Brom game where they I think had the better of the ball had the better of the chances were the better team um, and, and could have gone on to win that game so it's it's early days for Koku and you know, he, he took over a squad that had a lot of holes in it. Um, and he's quite clearly trying to impart a new mentality and a new, and a new squad into Derby. What I'm concerned about is a quite clear lack of, of, of strategy. There's no real brand of football that I can see that's consistent with the way that they play. And Ryan, in his, in his piece with The Athletic, talks about how um, in the West Brom game and opening day against Huddersfield, um, he posts a couple of positional maps which show just how much wider they got the wide players. But is that, that that's not going to be Koku instructing his players to come in, inside. That's going to be opposition managers finding a way to suffocate Derby and stopping them from using those outlets. So it's early days and you know it's it's an embryonic table still. Um, as I said last week, this time last year, Norwich and Sheffield United were buried in mid-table um, and they went on to, to get an incredible amount of points. So for Derby fans right now, uh, the games don't get any easier. Cardiff at home then leads away coming up soon. And, and if there's no points from those two games, you can imagine that Koku would be under a bit of pressure. But given the, the project that's being undertaken at, at Derby and the, the players they lost in the summer, I think that would be really, really harsh. And you know, Wayne Rooney's coming in quite soon, so that should take <laughs> a bit of the pressure off him. Yep, still early days, but uh, food for thought, Ryan's piece on The Athletic, that's for sure. If you'd like to read that piece and check out uh, various other pieces from a fantastic array of writers uh, then you can uh, sign up to a free trial and also get 50% off uh, after that trial expires if you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 you've got phil hay writing about leads as well you've got the likes of michael cox writing about tactics a- across the whole game it's uh, it, to my eyes, it's been a fantastic start. So we're very happy to be in partnership with them this season and hopefully some more writing coming from us over the coming weeks and months. Uh, the best line of all of the Sunday scouting reports that we had yesterday on Sunday came from Mick Cabell. Uh, he tweeted saying, Bielik looked like a quality player for Derby, but he was like Canute with the tide. Uh, and I think that's kind of how Derby fans felt. In that first half, uh, a good win for Brentford. Sheffield Wednesday lost at home to QPR. Uh, 2-1 to QPR. Sheffield Wednesday taking the lead after Fernando Forestieri, who Bullen is trying to find a, a sort of reintroduction into the team and managed to win himself a penalty based on not a huge amount from what I saw. Um, but QPR coming back and winning thanks to two goals from Jordan Hugill. That's five in six for him. George, are, are QPR looking quite tasty certainly tastier than we thought they would yeah they definitely are um, crucially the two games we mentioned on the betting show the two games they lost prior to this this mini purple patch they played very well in and, and were unlucky not to, not to get better results I think the Swansea game in particular they went to Swansea and, and performed really really well I know they, they hosted Swansea and played really really well um, they went to Ashton Gate and, and did a good job as well there so uh, it's, it's a big result for them Jordan Hugill uh I think is as, is as surprised as all of us by his goal-scoring exploits, judging by his reaction after he puts the ball away. Um, it's great to see someone with such a big smile on their face every time they score from uh, from open play. Uh, two games in a row in the league where they've gone behind QPR and come back to win them. And they seem to be finding creating chances and scoring them very easy indeed. Um, I'm sure that the, the creative impact of, of, of easy um, has a big onus on that, but he's only got one assist so far this season. Ryan Manning um, on the left-hand side providing two. So it's the creative spark is being shared across the team and it's good to see Elias Chair, a player who we liked a lot in League 2 last season, getting a couple of starts under his belt and two wins as well. So, to, reason to be excited. Again, too early to, to reevaluate expectations. But for Mark Warburton, um, who took over a club, I think many fancied not just to struggle, but to re- be right down the bottom. Uh, it's good to see him getting a group of young players together and, and making them into a really cohesive attacking unit. 
Yeah, I was really impressed, or have been quite impressed, I guess, over the last few games with the tactical flexibility that Warburton is showing. I think it's a real skill uh, and a real boon for teams when a manager can drill uh, his side to play in, let's say, two fairly different ways and two very different styles. Uh, I think it's very, very good in a 46-game in a championship season where you're going to come up against lots of different things. And last week, uh, when they were 1-0 down last weekend, um, they were playing 4-2-3-1, which is sort of the standard shape, and he switched to 3-5-2. So at 1-0 down against Wigan at home, he took off Scowen, a midfield player, for Leisner, a centre-back. And that's the sort of thing where... If you're in the stands and you're not really thinking and you've had a few beers, you sort of mutter to yourself, why does he, why is he bringing on a centre-back for a midfield player when we're 1-0 down? But since then, of course, they, they turned that game around and won. They've done the same on the weekend playing 3-5-2. Uh, and I think it's quite impressive that he's managing to get Hugo and Naki Wells, who didn't trouble the scorers but looked really bright playing with Hugo, and a very easy and Ilias Chair playing behind them in sort of central midfield roles where they have real license to get forward, but obviously have to show some discipline as well, to get those four players who all have individual attacking quality uh, in spades, is, is it's not always easy to, to build that into a functioning team. So if this 3-5-2 can have legs, and if those guys playing through the middle, easy and chair, behind the likes of Wellen Hugel, then they could look very, very dangerous indeed. I'm not sure if the full-backs or the wing-backs are going to be necessarily top top level in that system and that is important but we'll, we'll see they've got Luton West Brom and Millwall in their next three so when we talk about QPR in a month's time we'll have an even better idea of how good they're looking from a Sheffield Wednesday point of view Andy Gill tweeted us to point out that it's three wins all against bottom half teams and three losses all against top half teams so early theme with Sheffield Wednesday uh, becoming fairly clear there uh, did you enjoy George a chap aged 16 years and 63 days scoring a winning goal in a championship game because I did that's what it's all about terrible terrible not goal, after though. backing Stoke <laughs> I didn't know uh, awful goal but he you know the classic where he won't care about that I think they were the Stoke defenders the way they stood off him were absolutely desperate for him to have a shot and shoot he did it looked like a pretty tame effort rolling towards um, rolling towards Federici but instead it comes off the defender's foot and goes into the, the other far corner and it sums up the luck I guess that Stoke are having at the moment but for a Birmingham bred born supporting um, player making his debut I mean it's what literally every single person listening to this podcast has dreamed about so uh, it doesn't matter how they go in yeah we want to be the place where you get the best insight ideally and sometimes we can't necessarily provide that and when it comes to youth football and young talents in England the best person that we know when it comes to this stuff is Connor Rowden uh, and we've spent a lot of time tweeting and retweeting him we did a, a double header youth special uh, at the start of this year with him and he pretty much knows uh, as much as one can possibly know so I turned to, to Connor and I asked him to provide some insight just so you guys you know th there's one thing having the headline 16 year old player scores winning goal for boyhood team and you get all the you know, that gets shared widely and it's a fantastic story. But there's a, a feeling that he could be a serious, serious player. So let's have a quick check-in with Connor, who sent me some notes earlier. So th these are entirely Connor's words. I'm not taking any credit for it. But hopefully you'll get an idea of, of what we're looking at here with Jude Bellingham. Uh, Connor said he's been a pretty open secret for some time now. Probably could have moved to any club side in Europe if he'd wanted to over the last few years. All evidence points to him being committed to Birmingham until the right time to move for first team football comes. Um, as a 2003-born player, he's part of a very strong England age group. Other players you may have heard of from that group, bear in mind we're talking about 16-year-olds here, Louis Barry, who moved to Barcelona, Karamoko Dembele, the Celtic kid, Harvey Elliott, who moved to Liverpool. Um, but Connor says Bellingham's been the star attraction within that England group so far, starring in, in, in England youth teams against in games against big, big players. So... He is someone who, in the youth terms, has, has been known about for a while. Um, he says that he's playing further forward for Birmingham than he does for his age group, but that's quite normal. When he's with his peers, he plays deeper. Um, and he says when he eventually settles, he could be anywhere in between defence and a striker, but most likely 
a number eight, which is quite interesting given where he's playing at the moment for Birmingham, a bit further forward. The way he carries the ball is what sets him apart. Incredible balance and ability to change direction or send defenders the wrong way with the most subtle of movements or body feints. The way he throws someone off from a standing start is so natural and a massive building block for the rest of his game to branch off. Um, Connor finishes by saying how long he stays at Birmingham will always be the question. He'll have the choice to move at any point, but they should enjoy every minute they have him and revel in the progression of one of their own. Plus, he's got a little brother coming through after him. So a bit of insight from Connor Rowden there on Jude Bellingham. Big story from the weekend. Connor is at Rowden, J-R-S-G, on Twitter. So if you look him up, uh, you can ask him any further questions about sure Bellingham. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sure he will too. Thank you to him for providing that insight. Um, last thing in the championship, George, a great week for Luton. Uh, really kick-starting their season. They they got their first league win last weekend against Barnsley, second win against Huddersfield this weekend, uh, and, and with a Carabao progression sandwiched in between. Izzy Brown making the difference for them uh, in this game, as we were told. And I'm going to suggest that James Collins' winning of that penalty was top-tier gamesmanship. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, but it's good to see them off the mark and, and picking up points. Yeah, it is. The only team in, in the championship to have scored double figures and conceded double figures. Um, they're a team who seem to be, uh, in Graham Jones, um, what's the word? I mean, they're defensively pretty open, I would say. Still a, a, a constant attempt to try and go forward from, from wide areas as well. Um, a lovely goal from Shinny, and I think the important thing is after the back end of last season when they were so reliant on James Collins for goals, it's good to see some other players popping up as well. Seven different players have already scored for them this season, which is which is impressive. So early signs um, weren't, weren't bad, but I think we were a little bit concerned for Luton. But after getting two wins on the bounce uh, against Huddersfield and Barnsley, who at the moment look like two teams who are going to be down the bottom end of the table, um, puts them kind of firmly into mid-table now and given they found their feet, their goal-scoring feet, uh, should set them in decent stead. I mean, Huddersfield did create chances in the first half, it's important to say. Uh, Carlin Grant missed a fairly easy chance um, and uh, and Kachunga um, looked to be fouled at one stage as well, but they didn't get the penalty. But, I mean, it's for Huddersfield, it's difficult to really be too positive and seemingly no closer to getting a new manager as well. And, and Mark Hudson doing little to, to improve his own chances of getting the job. As someone who backed Carlin Grant, top goal scorer at the start of the season, I'm hoping they don't take his goal off him, but... I mean, he pretty much kicked it away yeah. from goal in off the defender. But yeah. I'm sure that I don't think he should it. use this platform to to, <laughs> to draw attention to that. To I'm honest. an honest guy. I'm an honest guy. Look, we're not going to pile much more misery on Huddersfield. Uh, it's not looking good. But maybe when they appoint a new manager, which might happen over the international break, then we will have uh, a bit more to say about them and and whether and just how bad things are looking. I suppose uh, in League One, George uh, Bolton played on the weekend, which was notable because there was a point where we thought they might follow uh, Berry in being expelled from the league. Things were looking very concerning from a Bolton perspective, but the takeover by the Football Ventures group eventually went through uh, and they can start looking forward. They can start planning ahead. That starts with today, the signing of a lot of players and probably in, in following weeks as well, some more free agent signings. Um, they got thrashed by Gillingham 5-0 on the weekend. It was that, that same very young squad with just a handful of senior pros. Love so conceding five. We won't focus on the football at the moment, but they have appointed Keith Hill and they've appointed as his assistant uh, our old friend David Flickcroft. So I wanted to ask you what you thought of that appointment for Bolton. Uh, they obviously have minus 11 points and need to build a squad from scratch. But, uh, you know, would you be happy with that from a Bolton perspective? I would definitely be happy with Hill. I mean, as safe pairs of hands go and someone who's born born and bred in the in the you know around the club he's going to be it's, it's a big job for him it's one of those interesting situations where because Hill did such a good job at Rochdale and it never really seemed like his ambitions were, were to move on from that despite how well he did the fact that it all kind of came apart it was hard to see where his next move would be so it's good that he's got himself into a job now at a big club at a local club um, and it's, it's probably a job that he wouldn't have been able to get had they not had their issues so He's the perfect manager, I think, to get them out of a tricky situation. Um, many, many times he exceeded you know, budget constraints at Rochdale to keep them in the league and, and go even further. So I think Hill's a, a good appointment 
Flitcroft's, I guess, star is rising at the moment due to Mansfield issue, issues um, since leaving the club where they were very, very good last season. Uh, John Dempster is, is struggling to get a similar tune out of a, a fairly similar group of players with some summer investment as well. Um, I'm surprised, given his personality, that he's someone who's happy to be a number two. Uh, but I think in Hill and Flitcroft, they have two guys with a wealth of, of knowledge of the league, uh, the players needed to, to come in. And because their next scheduled game in the league was against Berry on the 8th of September, it means they've got a couple of weeks now. The next game in the league isn't until the 14th of September. So they've got nearly two weeks uh, to form a squad and get them together. And it wouldn't be a massive shock if there are what nine or ten new players in that starting lineup against Rotherham in a couple of weeks. And Keith Hill is probably one of the men that you would trust um, to form a team of loanees and free agents uh, to be a... Uh, you know, a team who can make a good fist at, at clawing back 11 points on, on current 22nd place South End and then go from there. Yeah, Berry, of course, were expelled from the league last week and there's been uh, a lot said and a lot written, especially by the likes of, of David Conn, that sum up everything that's happened very, very well. Kieran Maguire as well, who we did a podcast with last summer, is someone who has managed to cut through so much noise to give quality in-depth information about the scenario and the situation and those two have covered this so so well I mean having been expelled it does feel obviously doom and gloom and yet just for the sake of this podcast uh, I'm not going to say everything's done because there is a group of people spearheaded it seems essentially or at least being facilitated by the MP James Frith who's fought very hard for the club who appear to still be trying to persuade the EFL to get round the table uh, to have a meeting with them and to, to try and find a way where they could be reinstated to the league, perhaps to League Two next season, I've seen suggested. So um, that is still up in the air to some extent. We hope, we touch wood, we cross our fingers that some sort of resolution can be found uh, and that it's not up to the Berry fans to start a Phoenix club from scratch. But of course, we will support that if that, if that is what ends up happening. We just hope that there can be an agreement found. Um, you know, well done Gillingham for beating Bolton 5-0, but as with Tramia and Ipswich before them, uh, we're not going to go in depth on a victory against a, a team of, of under 23 players ultimately. Um, they're playing Tramia next week, so I'm sure if Gillingham can beat them, we'll, we'll discuss them in depth. That win against Bolton, their first win of the season, so they needed that. Um, Ipswich are top of the league. I mean, it feels like only a few weeks ago that uh, you know, there was some concern about how Ipswich were going to take to League One. Um, but we sit here with Norwood and with Caden Jackson having scored nine goals between them in in, uh, in the six fixtures so far. Seemed to be quite a lot of penalties going in. The one they got on the weekend was certainly a foul outside the box. Um, and uh, But no, all very positive. Richard, uh, an Ipswich fan, said it was a routine win aided by the visitors gifting an under, uh, a disputed pen and a silly red for Wally, um, but plenty to be impressed with outside of Norwood and Jackson. Flynn Downs, who I've seen two people call Flynnadine Zidowns, which I can't work out if my, it's my favourite or least favourite. <laughs> do, you, do you prefer that to the Robert Dickey Pele chant? Uh, I do much prefer that to the chant that Oxford sing that compares <laughs> Rob Dickey to Pele, which really got me wound up at the Kassam the other day. Um, so Flynnadine Zidowns, uh, or Flynn... <laughs> or Flynn Downs, is, uh, is having a fantastic season. And he looks to be the one of the many young talents at Ipswich that is starting to break through and, uh, and establish himself in the team, and that's great to see. Uh, and Vincent Young at right-back, who they signed from Colchester, starting uh, his Ipswich career very, very well. What about Peterborough and Sunderland? George, 3-0 posh in this one. Uh, and it had to be Madison, didn't it? Madison, the Sunderland fan. The man that Sunderland and posh fans have probably discussed a potential transfer between the two teams more than anyone else that's never happened for a couple of different reasons. Uh, and that free kick, I mean, it's just an absolute howitzer. Yeah, it's a great goal. Um, I'm someone who's been fairly critical of of, uh, of Madison in the last couple of seasons as someone who's a bit of a luxury player, but in the last three or four weeks, he's really, really turned it on consistently. Unbelievable free kick for the first. Um, and then for the uh, for the set, for the, his, his second goal as well, um, really nice finish into the bottom right-hand corner and he looked a threat throughout the game. Even now, I've just looked on the Sunderland Twitter account. 
and they've announced the signing of a Leeds defender and everyone replying is writing announce Madison, announce Madison. So they seem to still somehow think there's a chance they might do something before the deadline ends. I'll look very, very silly if suddenly there's a photo of Madison in a Sunderland shirt in the next three hours, but somehow I think that's pretty unlikely. Uh, For Sunderland, this was an absolute disaster. Uh, I'm sure that Jack Ross looking at the fixture list, was pretty gutted to see a trip to Peterborough coming up just after it seemed like they'd turned their season. Um, well, turned the performances around, really, uh, with a dominant win against AFC Wimbledon, with a really good midweek win at Burnley. Not many teams will beat Burnley at Turf Moor in any competition this season. And they managed it in the in the Carabao Cup. So then to go and concede three goals at Peterborough, two of your, you know, not senior players, but two of your starting players in Luke O'Neill and Charlie White getting moronic red cards, like unbelievably thick red cards to get when you're 3-0 down. You're 3-0 down. It's, it's, not it's, actually sure O'Neill 9 did what the referee thought he did. I, I still think it was a red. Okay. I, and I don't think there was any provocation. He, he basically, he didn't hit him, but he kind of acted out, I would say. Shrugged him. Um, yeah, although I enjoyed it yesterday in the North London derby when Socrates seemed to think he was having a fight with Winks when Winks didn't, didn't seem aware about what was going on. It was kind of similar to that. I think O'Neill felt like he was in a he was in a tussle, whereas actually he was the only person um, looking for tussling. Yeah, uh, <laughs> whereas I mean Charlie White's ta- foul was easily could have been a straight red if he hadn't already been booked. Um, and so losing those two players, when you go three 0 down, the important thing is just to damage limitation. Don't get injured. Don't get sent off. Don't concede four more goals. And um, for those two players to have Russia bloods to the head and do that is is kind of beyond unacceptable. And it now puts the difficulty and the onus back on on Sunderland to go and get a result at Accrington in a couple of weeks' time. Not an easy place to go, as we all know. Uh, so a poor performance for them. But for Peterborough, after a really disappointing start to the season, uh, they do seem to have turned it around. Although, you know, as ever, relying on Marcus Madison, 45 yarders, is probably um, not the wisest way to go. Yeah, I think there's a feeling that with Madison playing behind Tony and Isa, I mean, that is a, it's a bit like what I was touching about with QPR earlier. It's not necessarily a trio of players, as talented as they are, who there's a sort of obvious way of getting them all in the team and also creating a team that is well balanced and solid enough and you know has enough about it to 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 be effective defensively so i and i think that is a balance albeit with different players to Isa and Tony uh, over the last few years that that posh have sometimes struggled to find um and maybe that there's signs that this that they are doing so um that that playing this diamond in midfield with with a nice ball player like Reed um, with the energy of Boyd as well, um, that it is kind of working for them. I think there's, you know, there's a feeling that the two games against MK Dons and against Sunderland have, in terms of, if you just take out Madison Screamers, basically, have been fairly even games with not much between the two sides in general. So if you have a player like Madison, of course, that's fantastic. And there's going to be many games over the over the course of 46 where he is going to win you games that are even um, but you know in terms of them really challenging for let's say an automatic promotion spot um, we're going to still want to see them um, start to dominate teams in games that they're really expected to win that, that are coming up so plenty to be excited about from a, a Peterborough perspective uh, Lincoln and Fleetwood was a match between two teams who I sort of think were th- both threatening and still are to be really quite good this season to be up there that's for sure uh, and again, it seemed like a, a fairly even game uh, in which Tyler Walker scored two goals in one minute, where where Fleetwood also, you know, gave as good as they got, but but couldn't finish essentially. And, and Lincoln, we know, is so good at shutting up shot. Toffolo's having a great season at left back, provided a good assist for Walker's first goal. And Callum Connolly, who I tweeted about the other day, I was so, so surprised to see them pick him up on loan from Everton. I'm not sure why he didn't get a championship move before that window closed because he spent the last two, two and a half seasons playing in the championship. He's racked up 90-odd games as a 21-year-old English talent uh, playing championship football and looking very at home. So for Lincoln to get him is an absolute coup. Uh, and, you know, although he did get a nice assist for that second goal, I think his quality's come uh, all over the park from that central midfield role. So really surprising and Im- impressed signing uh, for Lincoln and uh, and I see they've signed Hesketh today as well to give them more quality in the centre of the park so this Lincoln side just with so much to be positive about after a, a couple of poor results uh, and and George got to be quite worried about South End don't we they are uh, pointless in six games 17 goals conceded in six games uh, only four goals scored 
they lost 3-0 at home to Rochdale. Uh, and just from a South End point of view, any thoughts on, you know, is it just they just have to sack Kevin Bond and then someone else will come in and they might be all right? Or do you get the feeling there might be sort of larger issues? It, it's quite hard to work out exactly what's made them so, so bad. But that Rochdale goal that's doing the rounds where they knock it about, you know, it's great. And it is indicative of Rochdale's style of play, but it's also indicative of a South End team that had no interest in putting a foot in at any stage. I mean, it's you talk about uh, clean sheets. South End in all competitions haven't conceded two or more goals since on opening day they they got beat by Coventry one nil, and since then they've conceded three goals, two goals, four goals, two goals, four goals, four goals, three goals. I mean, it is shambolic, and and you you mention. The Rochdale game. I mean, their last two home games, they've conceded once in the cup and once in the league. They've conceded four and three to Milton, to, sorry, to MK Dons and Rochdale. I mean, that is not good enough. Uh, you, Rochdale are not one of the strongest teams in the league, despite you know the possession style football that, that they've obviously adopted this season. Um, but the lack of defensive shape, the inability to, to to close down men and win the ball back in in dangerous areas is just symptomatic of a team that aren't particularly well drilled. And you know, for Kevin Bond. Uh, it was an interesting move for him to get this job after never really having a managerial job before and always being a number two. And he, uh, under his uh, stewardship, the club avoided relegation last season. But the the recruitment didn't really seem to be particularly... Um, it seemed quite risky, I guess, buying beneath yourselves and hoping these players with potential would, would come good. Uh, like good ship, of course, who scored his first goal against Wickham. But losing key players as well, uh, Michael Kiteley's retirement... And being crucial to that, and also having some injury problems, it just it, it very, very quickly looks like a huge, huge job for whoever is, is doing it. For Kevin Bond, there doesn't seem to be much evidence to suggest that he'll be the person to turn it around. But if you were a, a manager without a job, I mean, would you want to go into Roots Hall now? Because it looks like a, a pretty tough one to turn around. I think I'd probably rather go to Bolton yeah. with a clean slate. It was cool to see uh, that Rochdale goal get shared so much. I mean, it, it prompted all sorts of quite tedious discussions about Pep Guardiola and how much he's influencing League One football or not. And I think, as with all of these debates, the answer is probably somewhere in between the two extremes. Um, but, you know, the, the Opta tweet that summed things up quite nicely was um, they've scored three league goals this season directly following passages of play with at least 10 passes this season. And in England's top four tiers, only Manchester City with five have done so more. So uh, this is a good time to sort of talk a little bit about Rochdale, which uh, I thought we were going to do on Sky on Friday night and we didn't have time to. So given I was going to talk about the fact that they have the highest possession stats in the league, that they play this exceptionally patient approach with the ball and a high press of sorts without it, and the fact that I thought that was maybe something that people don't perceive to be the truth when it comes to Rochdale. Uh, and the fact we didn't have time to talk about that on Friday night ended up being a bit of a blow because I might have looked quite smart if I had said it all then. Um, I'm not going to talk about that. Well, I think the, the, the comparisons with uh, the way they play is kind of stronger with Tottenham, isn't it? So maybe we could call them Pochdale. <laughs> Did you reverse engineer that back from Pochdale? Or is that an, you know, did you think, how can I say Pochdale? I thought Pochdale first. Yeah. Right, okay, good. Um, <laughs> look, as, as well as this possession-based style, because I must say, as we know, possession is not everything. And something they've lacked, certainly before the weekend and possibly going forward, uh, is a way to, to sort of turn that possession into a multitude of chances. They're not a team that, that creates a lot. But another notable thing about Rochdale, I suppose the possession stuff is notable in the sense that Rochdale at this level are a low-budget team, low-resource team. So it's interesting that they go down this route, and it is unusual. The other thing they need to be flagged up for, in a positive sense, is uh, a youth development record in recent years that it is just so impressive, uh, especially from a team that competes in the area of the country that they do with the teams they have to compete with. You're looking at a, a team where, A, this is a very young side, um, apart from Henderson up front, obviously, and McNulty at the back, uh, a lot of young players. And in terms of youth de development in the EFL, the two great wins are when a player comes through your system and can be a key player for your team. And secondly, when a player comes through your youth system and you develop them to the point where you make a lot of money selling them, whether that's for an initial fee or a future sell-on fee. And they've done really well uh, in this sense. They got £1.2 million from Craig Dawson's sale 
this summer from West Brom to, to Watford. Didn't come through the youth system at Rochdale, but they really sort of made him as an EFL player. And then in the current squad, you've got Callum Camps, who's their star man, really, playing in the number 10 role, a real goal threat from range. And Ollie Rathbone as well. They're 22 and 23, respectively. They've played between them over 320 games for the club, and they are their key players. So you're getting one-fifth of your team, essentially, through the youth system. But you've also got Aaron Morley, who's, who scored on the weekend, scored a screamer in midweek. 20-year-old, big central midfield player. Looks like he's got great technique. Uh, maybe a bit naive on the ball, I think, at times, but looks like he could grow into a real player. And then you've got Luke Matheson, who is in the England under-17 setup, which is so impressive for a club of Rochdale's stature. Um, he has been getting some game time at right-back. He's a 16-year-old. He got his GCSE results last week, all A-stars and A's. He's someone to watch as well. And finally, Daniel Adshead, who is part of the England under-19 team, was sold this summer to Norwich, who we know have a, a pretty smart recruitment system, sold to a Premier League team. If he's a success at any point, you feel like Rochdale will do very well out of it. So I wanted to give them a shout out for that reason, because maybe there's things that we haven't spoken about enough and maybe there's things that people wouldn't realise that Rochdale are doing behind the scenes and uh, creating a really good environment. So all good stuff there. I think with a nod to good wins for Accrington and Burton and a nod to a great game that you watched at the Kassam, ultimately ending in a draw, we will take the opportunity to move on to League Two, if that's right with you. Yeah. Uh, George, if I may say, and it was noted at the time, very little League Two coverage last week with Dave Jones. League Two specialist as well, Dave Jones. Um, the look on his face when I started asking him about Exeter was um, was quite a picture. Uh, but yeah, no, I did say then that we'd spend a bit more time on it. So um, And a good weekend to do so with a few teams really rising to the top early on. Yeah, we've got five teams at the top of League Two. We're going to just go through the five teams really and touch on how we think their start of the season, well, how good it's been and, and whether it could continue. Now, these are five teams who were all in the league last year as well. So they aren't the teams that came down, your Bradfords, your Walsalls, etc., that might have been expected to challenge at the top. And you've got Plymouth, obviously, in sixth. But starting with Exeter and going through Crewe, Newport, Grimsby and Swindon, uh, George, these are all teams who look to have taken themselves through the summer and made themselves better. Uh, Exeter being one example of this. They top the table at the moment. A really positive start and one thing that stands out is a lot of very narrow wins yeah i mean this was another one although it's worth pointing out i think this exeter win was one <clears throat> you know this is the fourth time they've won a game this season all of them have been by a solitary goal three of them have been one nil but this feels like the most dominant and the most impressive of all of them um they were far far better than mansfield they completely deserved to be ahead when they went ahead um, and mansfield offers offered precious little in reply so this feels in my head at least like the game that really solidifies Exeter's credentials as being uh, one of the possibly being one of the top teams in the league because you you had to feel especially with the nature of the late goals in their previous three wins as if all three easily could have been draws in which case they'd have been somewhere down in mid-table whereas you know wiping the floor with Mansfield as they did despite Mansfield's you know poor start to the season you still have to give them credit for doing for doing that and for being dominant in doing so so really impressed by them um, obviously the, the Grimsby train keeps on running uh, going 1-0 down away at Walsall and coming back to win 3-1 that front three of, of Green Ogbu and, and Hansen continuing to to be really impressive I think Green you know he's he's retained a lot of the, the strengths he had as a player when I knew him when he was at Oxford where he's both a very good goal scorer but he can also pull wide and play as a winger and, and, and get crosses into the box as we saw with, with their second goal um, providing for Hansen so I think Ogbu's got a similar sort of yeah. play a bit behind them but also move into the channels where you can and, and try and isolate yourself try and run at defenders and try and create for Hansen it, it, Jolly's fa finding a system that is working at the moment and you know it might with Hansen there's obviously going to be one fairly strong uh, direction that the ball's going to travel and quite often that's in the air but they're actually finding ways to, to create very good goal scoring chances for him as well as as using him as a target man I mean, what do you make of the fact that jolly last season in charge of grimsby we saw them try out i would say quite a few different styles and systems uh, it feels like this is showing an adaptability i suppose of sorts which is encouraging from a, a what is still a young manager um to, to 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 set up a team 
basically based around the players at your disposals and from what we can see getting an awful lot out of them because this team is unrecognisable from last season yeah absolutely and, and all credit to him for doing that uh, and credit to Grimsby for, for choosing a man you know, over a season ago who didn't necessarily have a fantastic first season uh, in full-time management last term um, you know, uh, good runs and, and some, some very very poor streaks as well but retaining faith in him and letting him build a, a squad that he want that you know that he saw as being fit, and this season that it seems like they're going to be benefiting from that. They kept hold of Mikio and the, the the goalkeeper, which is really really important because he was a star player last season. But as as we say, the the new look front three, um, and you know Elliot Whitehouse and, and Jake Heston Tyler, two crucial players in midfield as well. So. Um, and I think today they signed they signed the player from Sunderland. Yeah, Ethan uh, Robson, Sunderland, obviously happy with how they looked after Elliot Embleton last season, and some suggestion actually that Robson would probably have featured more in Sunderland's team if it wasn't for for Embleton's sort of uh, uh, reintroduction to the club and to the squad over the summer. Uh, Robson comes really highly rated by all Sunderland fans. Um, he had a loan up in Scotland where he impressed seems to have trouble staying fit, which could be something that holds him back. But if he can get fit and have a run of games, again, the feeling is that this could be a really smart pickup for Grimsby and could be very valuable for them to, to maintain this relationship with Sunderland, a team who will almost always have a couple of young players who need a bit of game time and uh, could work very well for them. Um, crew are also really impressing. And, you know, they got a home win on the weekend against Bradford, which is an eye-catching result. And yet it's it's actually the fact that they've won two out of their three away games that's almost more notable as we reflect after six games because just four wins from 23 away from home last season uh, and two out of three already, that was a key, key area of improvement. And it sort of suggests that this, this young technical crew team who have the same sort of personality uh, as other young technical teams in the EFL that we've seen, which is... At, at their best, scintillating, sensational, uh, at their worst, uh, a bit weak, perhaps a bit soft-centred uh, and a bit vulnerable away from home. But it looks like some of those players are coming to the fore now. Lowry looked brilliant on the weekend. Charlie Kirk playing off the left-hand side is about as, as technically adept player as you're likely to see at this level in terms of ball control, in terms of what he can do, passing and, and shooting and crossing. Um, they just have some lovely, lovely players. And uh, yeah, it seems at this early stage like they could be morphing into a, a team that knows how to win games as well, which is crucial. I think I, I noticed something really interesting about their... Because I thought going into this, being beaten 6-1 at home by Villa in midweek, playing a first team was going to be pretty hard to get over. Um, and you look at the team that, that Villa played and you can see that they started a lot of their stars. Um, you know, the, In terms of goal scorers, you have, you have um, Harahane and, and Grealish. But you look into the game itself and crew played really well <laughs> in the 6-1 defeat in terms of, you look at the shot count alone 17 shots apiece for, for, for Villa and crew yeah Dean Smith admitted it yeah of, of crew shots in the game only one was outside the area so you can see there that they were creating decent opportunities against a really really good Villa team despite losing 6-1 fine but maybe the, you know, the signs were there in a game against high level opposition that this is a, a team who are really coming to the ball at the right time and then David Artel have a manager who who's creating something really good. And, you know, you look at their last few games, they beat Crawley away from home. Crawley, a team who are projecting very well in terms of underlying numbers and, and are slowly making their way up the table. And they beat a Bradford team who've started the season very well and have a plethora of, of good attacking talent. Um, so I'm... It's not normally a 6-1 defeat that makes me get excited about a team, but that performance alone, and then to follow it up four days later with a with a win at home against the, the favourites for the title... Uh, yeah, it's I, I'm getting on board the the crew train. There we go. Well, what about the Newport County so train? About the crew train and the Grimsby train. So they all just trains in League Two. Well, they are called the Railway Men, aren't they? Correct. As well as I've been Alex. Th been through that station many a time as well. So. <laughs> there we go. Look, um, Newport are a team who we've spoken so much about, and I'm just sitting you've been, here. You've been on that train for for years. I'm sitting here with a big <laughs> smile on my face because. This Newport team are going to be so difficult to beat this season. Uh, they're still unbeaten. Um, they are not the perfect team. Let's be very clear about that. They've played six games. They've scored six goals. That's not a great goal return. They've only conceded two goals, however, and they were both on opening day against Mansfield. So five clean sheets in a row. They have hopefully 
more options, or not hopefully, I mean, obviously, more options now, um, really across the whole pitch, despite the fact that they lost Butler and they lost Joe Day in the in the uh, off-season, they were able to bring in players to give them a little bit more depth. And you can see in some of their games this season, uh, not including the weekend where they went ahead very early, that they maintain a threat throughout the whole game, no matter who goes off and who comes on. That's partly down to style of play. That's partly down to the unbelievable character of the team that, that reflects their manager. But it's also down to smart recruitment and bringing in players that can add to what was already a good team. The likes of Tristan Abrams, for example, is, is getting a lot of plaudits this season. So, you know, they're unbeaten in 16 games, uh, 16 regular season games. We don't include that playoff final uh, in that stat. Um, and just looking at their game management, looking at their defensive stats, it's it's hard to imagine that they're going to fall much further down than this. The only thing that might hold them back, again, is is that, that uh, potential lack of, of creating chances. But once they're ahead, it almost doesn't really matter because they're so adept at, at holding on to it. Um, yeah, it just feels to me it's, it's similar in a way to Accrington, where their recruitment is so good, where they're bringing players who you don't necessarily, on paper, and, and what they've done in the past doesn't stand out to be a signing that, that a kind of top-end lead two club going for promotion would make. Um, you look at, for example, Ryan Haynes, who they brought in to replace Butler, playing at left-back, who made 15 appearances at Shrewsbury last season, didn't really do much in his one year there and was let go without kind of a second thought, really. And he's now playing brilliantly on the left-hand side for, for Newport. Um, Tom King, who they brought in to replace Day, playing in goal, who's had a, a, a few loan spells at the likes of Stevenage and AFC Wimbledon. They brought him in permanently and he, he looks to be very at home straight away. It's just, it's impressive the way that Newport operate and how they can pick up these players um, and immediately get them performing at a level maybe above what they've shown before. Yeah, and those cup runs don't hurt when it comes to raising revenue that can go towards building your squad. So, you know, every little helps in that regard. And um, let's talk about the team in fifth, George. They beat Morecambe 3-1 on the weekend. They're called Swindon Town, a very fine club indeed. But what would you like to say about uh, Swindon Town's start to the League Two season? Yeah, it's a great start. Um, I think Owen Doyle is quickly showing himself as being one of the pickups of the summer um, because it always looked like a squad under Richie Wellens that was going to be able to to be pretty dominant in terms of possession, um, who had good ball players who were going to buy into the Wellens philosophy of, of the high press. But it always looked like with Anderson and Willery and these guys, these uh, good front players, able to play both out wide and up front, they had... They were lacking some goals. They didn't have a, pr- a prolific goal scorer. And uh, Doyle, I think, scored five in his first four at Swindon. He's someone who scored goals at League One level before, for whatever reason. Actually, I think we know the reasons it didn't work um, at his previous club uh, in Bradford um, because Bradford just were poor for his time at the club there, having come over from Oldham. So I think for them, having that focus point, Jerry Yates has also come in and, and done great things as well. It just feels like the, the focal the focal point for their attacks is now there. And, um, you know, a 3-1 home win against Morecambe is fairly regulation, you have to say. But the signs are, are, are very, very good. Despite dropping a few points recently, I think they are going to be a team who are going to be at the, at the top end of the table throughout the season. Well, you say it's a regulation win. Wellens did that classic... Um, there are no easy games? Menta- no, he did that classic... I have an unbelievable mentality thing of basically being angry after the game, saying that they, they took their foot off the gas and it was a really poor performance and he wasn't happy at yeah, all. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, trying to maintain really, really high standards. And, you know, I can't help but think back to the NTT20 Meets episode we did with him last season where, you know, he was maybe a dozen games into his time at Swindon. He had had a few months in charge of Oldham during their horrendous relegation season during which time they went through a pretty good period before they really ran out of, uh, of results. And at that stage, he didn't have a, a lengthy managerial CV, and yet it was very, very easy to be taken in by the way he spoke about the game, by the way he believes man management should play out, by the way that he believes uh, one should play uh, in terms of building a style that can translate up the leagues if you win promotion, uh, something that can translate from League Two, but also into League One and maybe into the Championship as well because such an ambitious guy, he he has evidently um, been able to impart his personality and his style on this team, on this whole club, I think, to some extent, 
uh, over the course of uh, the second half of last season and a summer. And that is hugely impressive. Some of the players he was able to persuade to come and join Swindon, the likes of Lloyd Isgrove and Zeki Friars, you know, that showed that he is selling something to these guys. He is selling something very, very impressive. It's like, reminds me of Cowley at Lincoln. How do they keep buying these players? Shackle in League Two, Frecklington, Bostwick, and now players like Callum Connolly. There's something about the manager. There's something about the way, the way that they can discuss their vision and how they see things going that, that rubs off on players. As you mentioned, Doyle, an absolute re- revelation since he's joined. Um, and look, you know, they're only in fifth at the moment. They have not shown themselves to be the perfect team by any means, but uh, it's nice to see a club with a bit of life breathed into it, I suppose. Uh, and it could be great for, for Oxford, of course, if uh, you might have the derby back and I'm sure you'll make a gag about six easy points and all that sort of stuff. So, um, look, uh, we've run out of time here, but good to chat, League Two, a little bit more in-depth. The, the other good thing, George, is that, of course, it's international break this weekend. So next Monday, we'll be talking League One and League Two exclusively. We're going to get some experts from various places to come and help us uh, break down the first seven games of the League One, League Two season. And we look forward to that. We hope that you do too. Um, a little nod to Northampton, a really good performance and a great result to beat Plymouth. Hopefully, we'll be talking more in-depth about the Cobblers next week. Uh, and no doubt, we'll be talking about Scunthorpe, especially if they fail to pick up any points again this weekend Uh, but that's it from us George thank you for joining me thank you guys for listening and we hope you have a good start to the week and we'll talk again with a betting show on Thursday